there is a desire to build more resilience into countries and company supply chains by diversifying into other markets, either nearer to the consumer market or a friendly country. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Trade Talk, the podcast designed to help get your business growing with confidence. Today, we focus on China. The doors of this global economic power have reopened after a long health crisis. What is the long-term impact of the closing of the economy? In a complex geopolitical context, what are the relations between China, the Western powers, and Russia? What is the economic, social, and political situation in the country? And of course, what are the repercussions on the business opportunities? Let's discuss all those topics with Bernard Au, Chief Economist at COFAS for the Asia and Pacific region, and Raphael Rousselot, Chief Underwriting Officer, also at COFAS Asia Pacific. Hello, thank you for being with us today. Hello, Ingrid. Hello, Ingrid. Bernard, can you describe the economic situation in China right now? China's economy was unable to fully recover from the shock of the pandemic. That is because consumption was constrained by the zero COVID policy. And in addition to the regulatory action taken on sectors such as housing, technology and education. So the removal of the strict COVID-19 restrictions was therefore generally seen as a positive for the Chinese economy. And in the early months following the end of zero COVID policy, economic activity, especially services, showed a, a solid rebound. So if you look at the data, in the first two months of 2023, industrial output was up 2.4% year on year. Retail sales rose 3.5% and fixed investment growth came in above expectations at 5.5%. So the post-COVID recovery was earlier than expected, which is generally positive for the Chinese economy. Raphael, after the reopening of the economies and borders, a lot of countries with mature or emerging economies have seen an economic, economic catch-up effect. Was it the case in China? In China, we can monitor business activity trends in almost real time, thanks to our internal data. For instance, by tracking the frequency of requests for cover against payment default from a period to another. Our data show increasing demand for retail, food and beverage on hospitality sectors. Obviously, the airline companies have also benefited from the end of COVID-19 restriction as since the population is fully mobile. However, regarding private consumptions, concerns about unemployment or living costs may affect consumer sentiment in the near future. Bernard, what is the country's economic outlook in the short and in the medium term? I think in the short to medium term, the Chinese economic outlook remains challenging because the country faces multiple headwinds, including weak household spending, property market decline, and constrained local government's public finances. So the central government themselves has set a GDP growth target of around 5% for 2023, in which the new Premier Li said that achieving the target is not going to be an easy task and requires uh, redoubled efforts. So the ability to revitalize consumption as well as to stabilize the housing market will be the key uh, components to a robust economic rebound. We are expecting China's economy to expand by between 4 and 5% this year. Could you tell us a bit more about the real estate market? How things have developed recently? Can we say now that the sector is under control? I think that the government announcement in November of a 16-point rescue plan from the central bank as well as the banking and insurance regulator 
this announcement represents the most significant change in housing policy since 2016. And this announcement provides the clearest message that managing downside risk and restoring the housing market stability is becoming a policy priority and also part of an important effort to pursue overall economic stability. And most significantly in this plan were measures that address the developers' funding problems. So while the real estate market remains under pressure, there is some stability setting in. If you look at the real estate climate index, it has stopped falling. The decline in home prices has also slowed in February as well as other housing indicators such as the real estate sales and investment, they also look to have reached a bottom. A, a strong rebound in housing activity like what we saw in 2015 is very unlikely in my opinion, especially when the structural downshift in housing demand is a key constraint for the sector. Raphael, in a mixed local and global economic context, what are the main business opportunities that you see in Asia? Which sectors could benefit from uh, the reopening of the economies? Asia, the world region, is benefiting from the return of Chinese tourists, especially Southeast Asian economies like Philippines or Thailand, where tourism contributes to over 15% of GDP. In those countries, the rebound in tourism will have positive effects on labor market, what will then support domestic consumption on retail sector. For manufacturing industries and export economies like South Korea or Japan, this is more balanced as China recovery alone cannot compensate the current global trade environment. Regardless of the specific post-COVID recovery, are there other sectors uh, which can be promising in China for the years to come? Population is aging and by 2040, around 400 million or 30% of Chinese population will be 60 years or older, meaning there will be opportunities in health sector for medical and pharmaceutical services or for medicines that are publicly insured. The ICT sector will offer business opportunities in the coming years as well. China government policies aim to accelerate self-sufficiency in high-tech. With tax incentives and financing supports, Chinese companies are today encouraged to invest in R&D in domains like artificial intelligence or advanced chips. Green energy is also getting strong public support from electric vehicles to renewable energy, including solar or wind. But whatever the industry is, market opportunities for foreign companies could be constrained by one, sanctions from Western economies, and two, by China regulation itself. On point two, latest communication from China's new Premier League with country's number two official have been quite reassuring for foreign companies. He has emphasized that China should expand market access and should facilitate trade by removing government controls. Bernard, on the political level, what lessons can be drawn from the last CCP Congress? And what about the total reversal of the anti-COVID policy? So what we can take away from the China's 20th Party Congress that took place in October last year, it marks the consolidation of power by Xi Jinping, who has secured a non-breaking uh, third term as the Secretary General of the Communist Party of China, as well as the Chairman of the Central Military Commission. So conventions of the party's political transition appear to have changed as well, with several members um, at age 68 or 
older being promoted into the Politburo or extended their Politburo membership. So this is unprecedented uh, since uh, for the past 20 years. And the new Premier Li Tiang, he also has not been a vice premier or any national level governing experience, unlike his predecessors. On the anti-COVID policy, the decision to exit from zero-COVID policy was unexpected and quite sudden, to be frank. And without preparation at the end of November last year, mainly because the political incentives to maintain the policy was really reduced, uh, the economic cost is quite prohibitively expensive, and there is also increasing evidence of its ineffectiveness against the quite highly transmissible Omicron variant. So the protests that you have seen in the news, they prompted China's leaders to cut its losses and exit quickly the zero-COVID policy. And a lesson that can be drawn here perhaps could be that the sudden reversal reveals that the leadership still has a pragmatic side and its pivot away from zero-COVID strategy showcases its tactical flexibility. What is the social situation now? We know that there has been um, strict control measures, lockdowns, mass testings, all of that ended up in, um, you know, fueling public tensions. We saw demonstrations in several cities towards the end of 2022. Is it still the case? After the anti-COVID demonstration late last year and the end of COVID restrictions, there have been no reports of uh, any protests, uh, definitely not the large-scale protests. So I would say that the social situation is more stable and the Chinese are now able to travel outside of the country once again. Rafael mentioned the unemployment rate, which is still high. What is the outlook? China met their labor market targets for 2022. They achieved an unemployment rate of 5.5% and they created 12 million urban jobs despite a quite challenging economic and health environment. So the government continues to prioritize stabilizing employment into 2023. However, youth unemployment remains quite high. Uh, data shows that uh, a rise in youth unemployment at the start of 2023 reaching about 18.1% in February. So this is three times compared to the overall urban unemployment rate of 5.6% and notably higher than the average OECD rate of 12.8%. So this year, there will be a record 11.6 million graduates expected to join the labor force. And the internet, the real estate education sectors that were traditionally known to hire fresh graduates in large numbers are, are under pressure uh, after strict regulatory pressure on this industry led to layoffs and a sharp scale back in operations. So it will remain challenging for the Chinese government to create enough jobs for this 11.6 million graduates. The health crisis highlighted the very strong dependence of most countries on China now there's a clear desire of some developed countries to free themselves from this Chinese dependence. Is that a risk for Chinese growth? Because of how integrated China is in the world trade and how it has emerged through the past two decades as the world's factory, China has a very important role in global supply chains. And as you highlighted, the COVID-19 pandemic emphasized how interlinked uh, the world market is. So there is a desire, as you said, to build more uh, resilience into countries and company supply chains by diversifying into other markets, either nearer to the consumer market or a friendly country, the so-called nearshoring and friendshoring. 
So this supply chain diversification trend is expected to continue in the coming years. This is therefore a risk for Chinese growth. And the Chinese leadership, they recognize this risk, which is why they came up with the dual circulation strategy, where improving domestic circulation or domestic demand is the key to future growth. China is not abandoning trade or looking inward, but they recognize that external markets may not provide the same level of growth compared to the past. Rafael, a few years ago, China was a top priority for a lot of companies, a market too big to be ignored. Has it changed? Are those companies choosing to look elsewhere now? Yes, global players are diversifying their supply chains to reduce their dependence on China. Multinationals like Apple, Sony, Samsung, Nike or Siemens, to name few, have shifted some of their production lines out of China in Vietnam, Thailand or Malaysia. India, as a fast-growing economy, is a logical alternative with its young and skilled workforce and with labor costs that are lower than China. However, the relocation of manufacturing facilities is not driven by economic considerations only. This is also the result of the ongoing trade tensions between China and the U.S. on rising geopolitical risks in Asia-Pacific region. At Cofes, are you seeing an increase in requests for protection linked to risks and geopolitics in Asia, and uh, more particularly China, of course? Well, international and export companies benefiting from Cofes solutions are covered against political events. That's why we don't see an increase of requests related to political risk. It has always been a topic for risk managers. But what we see is that political uncertainty is now one of the main, is not first source of concern for risk-aware companies. It was not the case a couple of years ago. Bernard, how have Sino-American and European relations evolved in recent years? Um, we know that a lot has changed recently. Of course, there's the conflict in Ukraine and uh, the recent visit of the Chinese president in Russia. So certainly China's relations with the U.S. has run into quite a, a high difficulty level in recent years with the Russian invasion of Ukraine further worsening the bilateral relationship. And there are a number of issues that the U.S. is concerned over China, ranging from industrial espionage to human rights violation in Xinjiang to the future of Taiwan. But one of the top reasons that is perhaps unnerving for, to the U.S. leadership is that China is closing the economic, the industrial, as well as the technological gap. So deteriorating relations between both sides have contributed to a widening ideological rift, while at the same time, a deepening of China-Russia relations. When it comes to uh, China-EU relations, they have also steadily deteriorated in recent years due to rising tensions over security and trade concerns. And neither side seems to have any strategy on how to deal with the other The current geopolitical environment of confrontation um, made it quite challenging to find ways to improve the bilateral relations. While China sees Europe as a vital pillar against the emergence of a united Western front and is therefore keen to develop closer economic, technological, as well as political ties with Europe. But at the same time, Chinese leadership has not taken any clear and concrete steps to improve relations. So I do not see this trend of geopolitical fragmentation reversing in the foreseeable future. 
What are the risks and opportunities that the country represents on the business level for foreign companies? I think you look back to the political structure of China and the primary objective of the Chinese Communist Party has always been to maintain the monopoly of power in the country. And for the party, they have to maintain both the agendas of control and growth, which are currently in tension, but also to some extent complementary. But the shift in recent years is increasingly towards strengthening the control agenda And there is also a trend now in China to promote domestic industry over-reliance on foreign imports and technology, uh, a so-called self-reliance agenda, which is a recognition of U.S. hostility. But in the near term, China is still quite reliant on foreign imports and technology. They want to be self-reliant, but it's still interdependent on the world. And this is reflected in the absence of a very strong retaliation against U.S. companies or foreign firms. So China is still quite important as well as a large market for foreign companies. Its industrial supply chains remain comprehensive and extensive and difficult to replace quickly. So in the near term, despite the regulatory challenges uh, and as well as the uncertainty uh, inherent in China, there are still opportunities for foreign companies to conduct business in China. Rafael, we talked earlier about the growth sectors, but what are the sectors most at risk, especially in the light of um, what Bernard just told us? For the sectors, the more at risk industries that are high consumers of commodities will continue to face challenges as prices remain above pre-pandemic levels. Over the last months, we have seen an increase of payment default on corporate insolvencies due to volatile energy prices affecting companies' margins on liquidities. Some ICT companies are struggling due to declining sales because of weaker global demand for consumer electronics, and especially SMEs that are fully integrated into ICT supply chain and that have accumulated debt to survive the pandemic. Again, our data show more payment delays. Finally, some high-tech companies could be subject to sanctions from U.S. Commerce Department. We have seen with Huawei case that the restriction to get access to semiconductor or key technology had substantial impact on its revenues and profits. All in all, the level of uncertainty is high, inflation remains, external demand is weak, companies' margins are squeezed. Political risk won't disappear on her accentuating market volatility. To sum up, with the current risk environment in China and globally, companies need to reinforce their credit management processes. Raphael, Bernard, thank you very much for this information on a country that obviously is still very strategic. Thank you. Goodbye. For Cofas, Ingrid Lebuzon. Please tune into our next podcast and in the meantime, head over to kofas.com for all of Kofas's country and sectors risk analysis.